What up, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Um, I've been doing a lot of podcasts lately with physical therapists, and um, I kind of realized that in myself. And I think the reason why is I tend to just sort of gravitate to these people because I myself am so fascinated in you know movement science and how it relates to performance and how it relates to preventing injury and pain. And so I guess part of me kind of wishes I went to school for physical therapy. So I could uh, do what they do. Um, and I'm also friends with a lot of physical therapists because I like to pick their brains and and really um, try to improve my craft um, through them. And so today's guest is also a physical therapist. His name is Zach Gabor. Uh, I learned of him through my podcast with uh, Teddy Wilsey, um, which you may know on Instagram as Strength Coach Therapy. And he basically told me, hey, you got you to gotta link up with my boy, Zach. So I did. And we had uh, this podcast and, and, and I was really really a great podcast with this guy. He's super smart. He has a lot of great information and knowledge on pain science and rehabilitation and how it all fits together, not just from the standpoint of fixing tissue and remodeling tissue and, and, um, you know, treating injury from that standpoint, but also just how injury can propagate into your life from so many different areas, whether it be, you know, uh, mental and emotional stress, whether it be socioeconomic status. Yes, even things like socioeconomic status can contribute to pain, believe it or not. And we get into that in this podcast. And so I really just picked his brain and, and, you know, got to the bottom of how he thinks and how he treats his patients and, um, you know, got him to answer some hard questions. I think I asked him some questions that he wasn't expecting and uh, that kind of put him on the spot. So sorry about that, Zach. But he did great in answering them um, and had the information handy. And so we had a great conversation about all of that. And we talked about other, you know, happenings and you know, the social media game and marketing and all that and how it plays a role today these days and even nociboing people, like getting them to believe that they are hurt when really they're not. Um, and so uh, I really liked this conversation with Zach. I know you will, too. And welcome my guest, Zach Gabor. All right. Hey, Zach, what's going on, man? Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. I'm um, really glad to have you on. I uh, heard about you through um, Teddy Wilsey uh, at Strength Coach Therapy for those not familiar with the name, but probably familiar with the Instagram handle with all the followers that guy has. But, uh, you know, I was having a conversation with him. And at the end of it, I just asked for some recommendations from him as far as people I could talk to for the podcast. And your name was pretty much first on the list. Um, so introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and stuff like that. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on first off, Andres. And uh, yeah, Teddy and I, I guess we kind of go back to the, uh, you know, remembering when when Teddy had, you know, like a thousand followers on Instagram. Yeah. Um, we all started was, there. Yeah. And yeah. I think he's done a really great job at balancing, uh, you know, integrity while building a really massive platform and putting out, um, putting out really good information. I think one of the things this will loop back into explaining a little bit about me that, you know, why Teddy and I really get along is he really, um, he really dives deep into some of the nuance and appreciates a lot of the uncertainty and ambiguity that makes up a lot of, uh, especially pain um, with individuals. And he does a great job of uh, delivering on those topics without going too, 
clickbaity and, uh, you know, oversimplifying it too much. So, you know, I've always respected Teddy a lot for that. And, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a PT out of Boston. I've been practicing for about five years now. Um, I started really getting into strength training and resistance training, strength conditioning in my second year of PT school. I mean, playing sports and roll lifting my whole life. Um, I kind of just fell in love with how important that piece was for uh, physical therapists to really start to embrace because, um, you know, I think that strength coaches and movement professionals are frontline in terms of really making an impact on just like wellness in mm-hmm. America and globally. There's a ton of um, ton of really large numbers of disability and healthcare disparities and so much of it can be moved in the right direction with good movement and advocating for that wellness. And I just think a lot of physical therapists and in particular, our profession is so, so behind the eight ball with that. And if anything, I think sometimes we can contribute uh, negatively to it by over being very hypercritical and demonizing a lot of movements, which will in turn make people like fearful to move. And so that's something I'm quite passionate about. And yeah, I work in Boston private outpatient clinic, um, with a sports bias. And we work with a lot of high school athletes, college athletes, but also just general orthopedics and older population as well. And, uh, on, on the side of that, I run a online educational company for musculoskeletal providers, um, all around helping to mentor with education and, you know, communication skills specifically and critical thinking skills. And that's called the level up initiative. And, um, yeah, that's kind of like the sparkiest spark notes about me. Huh. Nice, dude. No, I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. I think um, I, I think there's such a missing link these days with like getting access to quality healthcare, especially for people who are in pain, especially for people who lift and have little aches and pains. And like you have to go to the doctor. I mean, I've gone through this myself uh, before I found a physical therapist who's like on a cash cash model. But uh, just having to go to the doctor and they want you to get the x-ray and they want you to go through five other people. And, um, you know, before you can even ever get to a person who's going to help you start to even push you in the right direction to feeling better. So that's really awesome that you are already in that kind of clinic, I'm assuming, where you guys can see people maybe on a cash basis. No, so we're, no. we're an in-network clinic, but oh, wow. we, have direct, we have direct access in Boston. So people can come right, right to us okay. without a referral. And I think even to your point, Andres, like one of the things is, uh, you know, not only that whole loophole of a process where you have mm-hmm. to go, jump through all of those different hoops, but worse is if one of the professionals is telling you like, no, like you can't, you should stop doing that. That's why you're having pain. Like you should Mm. stop lifting. That's why you're having pain. Or, uh, you have this, you have this, uh, neck pain because your posture, um, just Mm. fix that and you'll get better. And it's like, it's well-intended advice, but it can actually have a lot more consequences than, than what meets the eye. So when it comes to, I mean, I know you're big on pain science and stuff. You're just talking about, you know, you and Teddy kind of seeing eye to eye on a lot of that kind of stuff. So let's jump into that, I guess, first and foremost, because that's probably the more fascinating topic in as far as I'm concerned with, with, um, you know, lifting and, and how you get injured and things like that. Yeah. Um, you know, what, there's sort of a melding of like, what is physically could be wrong with you as far as tissue, 
damage and things like that. And then also maybe like psychologically what could be happening and all that kind of stuff. What have you seen or, or if you could explain briefly like what your interpretation of, of pain science is if you had to put it in a nutshell? <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a hard question, man. Um, oh, I know. I'm hitting you with a, with a good one, right? So yeah, I don't know that I could succinctly like answer that, but we can start to unpack it together and just kind of riff. So let's do it. I think first is, um, I think one of the hard things is we, uh, it first starts with kind of like accepting the fact that pain is a very emergent and entwined experience. So like Mm. we can't really dissect out and isolate like the physical versus the psychological versus, you know, the social aspects of pain. Like we can think critically about which factors might um, contribute to it, but it is very multifactorial. So we always, we're biological beings. So we always have to consider biology. And I think that's one of the pitfalls of pain science is that, and I'm guilty of this myself when I was like deep in the rabbit hole is you might think, oh, it, you know, it's just, this is, this pain is just an output of the brain. And we, we know that, uh, we know that, you know, fault, you know, quote unquote, you know, degenerative changes don't equal pain, but that doesn't mean that they can't be contributing to it. So I think the, the biggest thing that that pain science has allowed us to do moving forward is just be, be critical of how we're thinking about pain and, and starting to weigh all the different multidimensional factors. And that will include people's psychology, their, you know, the more of the kind of tissue contributions, if you will, but understanding that pain is such a complex phenomena that it doesn't need to have this linear this neat linear relationship that I think is more so the public lay understanding of pain, which is very much this like, I have pain, therefore there's this thing that's wrong. If I fix this thing that's wrong, then I'll get better. Mm. And it, it just doesn't always quite work out like that. Or you have people that have like phantom limb pain where mm-hmm. they don't even have tissue there, but they still experience pain. So it's, it, I don't know. I've had so many existential crises crises about like people talk about pain is it a sensation is it a perception um and it's probably a bit of both it just really is very context dependent so i think we can start there and um and then jump off um with some other questions it's yeah. just it's such a it's so hard to oh, talk about it's absolutely so well because we don't really understand 100 percent what's going on either right the, it's just so unclear <laughs> we've begun to scratch the surface of something that is too large to maybe even ever uncover, but um, I think um, I think too. One of the things I've learned over the past five years of studying it is I don't necessarily know what it is, but I know a lot more of what it's not, and that's it. helped inform my practice. If that if that makes sense. Do you see people come in, and I mean, how often do you see people come in, and it is just as simple as um, I've got some tendonitis in my knee, and we 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 fix that up, and it goes away. I mean, does that happen quite a bit? Yeah, I mean, it does. That's, that's very, that's very much the case, but there's always going to be, um, there's always going to be multidimensional considerations that we have to think about. So even if an individual might come in with a straight up textbook, acute tendonitis, mm-hmm. we also need to be mindful of the narratives and the language that we're using because we could treat that orthopedically very sound, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, depending on how we educate them about what's going on, we might create some fear avoidance in the future, which might lead to some issues downstream. How so? 
So if let's say someone comes in with a tendonitis, like a knee, like patellar tendonitis, and we're like, oh, you've been squatting with your knees going over your toes. Mm. That's why that's the problem. You just can't squat with your knees over your toes and you'll get better. So what ends up happening is, you know, they modify the movements. They stop putting their knees over their toes. It gets better like you would expect it to. But now all of a sudden they're, you know, they're skeptical and nervous about doing that type of movement going forward. Mm -hmm. And so now it deconditions, deconditions even more where if you do ever slip into that pattern, which isn't bad at all, um, Mm -hmm. then they might be at higher risk of getting sort of injury. And we see some of those attitudes of fear avoidance that tend to be some low level risk factors for developing persistent issues. Got it. Yeah. So rather than, rather than create that fear avoidance, it's better to make them more robust, more anti-fragile. And, you know, if they do slip into that pattern, they're actually able to absorb that force and and not get injured. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just putting it in context where it's saying, Hey, maybe they have a super, you know, quote unquote knee dominant squat pattern where they're getting that big positive shin angle. You know, they're loading up the patellar tendon a little bit more. That's not inherently a bad thing. You might just say, Hey, let's take a look at your training volumes over the past week. Oh yeah. Over the past month, you've had a huge spike in your intensity. That might be part of why it's flared up. So, you know, that's the movement in itself is fine. Let's just work on making sure you're ready to tolerate those loads and let's be mindful of loads moving forward. The other thing you might unpack in a good history is like maybe they've had a ton of other stressors going on in their life that might've made them more susceptible to that, you know, quote unquote tissue injury. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we understand that things like poor sleep, other type of um, psychological distress or social disruption can also be contributors to pain emergence and lower that threshold of where people might get injured. So if we just take it at face value, which is exactly kind of how we're taught in PET school is, okay, point out that movement dysfunction. Oh, all right. Their, their knee slightly went over their toe. That's the problem without even unpacking their history. And then we demonize it. And then, you know, we create this unnecessary sort of fragility to movement instead of putting it in the bigger context, not demonizing it and empowering them for the long term. So it kind of sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of sounds like, like digging deeper is important there. You can't, like, you don't want to just make it too simplistic and, and try to look for these low hanging fruit of knees going over the, the toes kind of thing. Like you got to dig a little bit deeper. You got to figure out what's going on with them as far as uh, like what you just said, um, you know, stressors outside of the gym and things like that. Because otherwise, like if you just pick that low hanging fruit, um, you might be doing them a disservice as far as, you know, not really teaching them how to avoid it in the future. Right. And knowing that they might not be able to, you know, avoid it in certain contexts and making and kind of normalizing the experience to an extent. You know what I yeah. mean? It's not like we're trying to say like nothing matters. You're going to get pain eventually, but it's just saying like it happens. And sometimes we don't always have a perfect explanation for it, but here are some different factors that could have contributed to it but here's our plan to moving forward and um, just making sure that we're putting it. It's just, it's just zooming out and taking mm-hmm. a bigger picker, picture approach rather than just looking at the person as, as a point in time, you know, observing their movement at, at one, you know, just watching them squat once that, you know, you need to learn about their history and their volume and, you know, mm-hmm. all, even their attitudes towards certain things, you know, that mm-hmm. will influence this. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you that up front, just because I think um, like for anybody who gets into pain science, I think you were just saying it earlier, like there's a rabbit hole where like at first you're thinking like pain is associated with structural damage and then you get into this rabbit hole of pain science and you can get all the way to the other end of thinking that it is there isn't there it has nothing to do with structural damage and it's all psychological and things like that. You know, I don't know if you're if you're familiar with um, probably are with John Sarno, Dr. John Sarno's yep. work mm-hmm. um, with the, what is it, tension myositis right. syndrome. Right. You know, where where do you? I mean, what's your opinion on that? What what do you? Oh, I don't think. Stuff? I, I mean, I'm not a bit. I'm I'm grateful to people like Sarno because he helped you know open up the possibility that it's, I guess, an iteration of the biopsychosocial model. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think that that misses the mark because mm-hmm. that doesn't take into account, you know, structural biology is very important. Understanding musculoskeletal anatomy and pathology is extremely important, but it's understanding. So I guess like this is one of my favorite talking points in terms of like painting the picture of like it matters, but it, the thing is, is it might not matter as much as we thought it matters for certain things or certain things don't need to happen in order for people to improve. So for example, let's look at tendinopathy, right? Mm-hmm. With tendinopathy, we understand that part of the potential pathology is that the, the fibers um, in the tendon have become like disorganized, dysregulated and pathological and you know, could be a big part of contributing to an individual's pain experience. Mm-hmm. Cool. So we understand that. So what happens is we create these very mechanical approaches to rehab, which is okay, Let's do these eccentric overloads because that's going to realign, uh, realign the, the disorganized um, tendon fibers. And once that's corrected, we're going to resolve the tendinopathy and we're going to resolve the pain. And so the issue is, is that people do the eccentric overloads and people get better. So they're like, it's post hoc reasoning 101. You do an intervention, someone gets better and you're like, ah, I got it. It's these eccentrics. But the issue is, is that what we understand is that that actually doesn't necessarily change the organization of the pathological tendons. What it does is it might help build a bigger buffer. So the analogy around tendinopathy is treat the donut, not the hole, meaning like the hole being the pathological part of the tendon. That doesn't necessarily change, but you're building a more robust tendon around that that's going to be capable of handling the loads that are required for the tasks that people are trying to complete. And so that's why our narratives matter. Cause if we're just hinging it around, ah, now nah, we need to realign these fibers or why, when I was taught in school, we need to do transverse friction massage in order to break up the scar tissue and realign it so you can get better. You know, these narratives kind of fail to be validated with our contemporary understanding of pain. Cause we know that that's not necessary for people to get better. And it can potentially irritate it and make it uh, more sensitized because you're adding compression to a, you know, a sensitized tendon. So it's just kind of taking a bigger picture. And one other example that I really like is um, looking at like scapular dyskinesis. So you're familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah. So like you, you look at someone, you do a movement assessment and you might see that, let's say their right shoulder has some, you know, mild mild plus scapular dyskinesis for those out there, meaning like their shoulder blade just isn't quite tracking this as smoothly as let's say the other one where we know our shoulder is going to do 180 degrees of range of motion. The theory is that if your scapula isn't moving and setting and timing in rhythm with the humerus, with the arm bone, 
that that's going to lead to impingement of, of anterior tissues in the shoulder and potentially shoulder pain. And so interventions are targeted at correcting the scapular dyskinesis and like upward rotators. So you might work on serratus and lower trap. And these things aren't inherently bad or wrong. And like our friend with tendinopathy treatment, those targeted exercises tend to work. But mm -hmm. The long-term kinematics of the scapula don't really change when we look at all the like robust longitudinal evidence that studies that. And so you can have interventions that are super biomechanically focused and people get better, but the actual biomechanical hypothesis doesn't change. Mm -hmm. And so it's just kind of an eye-opening thing because I think it gives us a little bit more flexibility with how we're working with athletes and saying, hey, yeah, we have this sort of quote unquote optimal range of how we want things to look, but we can't just straight up demonize things if they fall outside of that. Cause even to bring it back to scapular dyskinesis, if you look at someone with shoulder pain yeah. and you ask them which shoulder is the one that hurts mm -hmm. based on how their shoulder blade is moving, it's a coin toss. Really? So even for folks that have scapular dyskinesis on one side, they might have shoulder pain on the other side. There's about a 50% mm -hmm. chance. And so it's just one of these things where it can be relevant. It should always be considered but it's not this like direct linear yeah. relationship where it's like, boom, found the, found the dyskinesis. We just got to fix that bad boy. And then we'll get better. Like people mm. get better because I mean, think about all the crazy think about all the crazy, like meta his, history of medicine and how people have gotten better despite diverse treatment paradigms. Mm. And so that's what I challenge people is like, what's going on underneath the hood, right? People believe in, like what they're doing, the clinician or the, or the strength coach has conviction with what they're saying. So they're creating really powerful buy-in or what we'll call a meaning response or like a placebo effect type of mechanism. Right. And then you're moving, you're probably, you're loading the area, you're making it real more robust to, to tolerate the stressors um, imposed on it. You're generally modifying some of the symptoms, but you know, it's, it's what are these active ingredients across uh, diverse paradigms? Cause I think it allows us to be a little bit more humble and being like, no, it's like, I only do SFMA and that's why people get better. I only do PRI and that's why people get better. Like it all, it all works. So yeah. it's, uh, I think it's just having some humility about the narratives we're giving because it's easy to, to dig into the super specific, um, like fixer mentality, but like people generally get better with <laughs> like fairly general programs and people aren't wrong to do specific stuff because that stuff works too. And it's, and it should be considered, but it's not the end all be all. Got it. Got it. So, so if somebody that might be wondering, like they hear you saying like um, if you, if you notice something like uh, shoulder dyskinesis or scapular dyskinesis, or you notice something like knees going over the toes, like you mentioned earlier, that, that, you know, if that's not necessarily the cause and fixing that isn't necessarily going to fix the pain, they might be thinking like, well, then what is, what, how am I going to get better? How, how am I fixing the pain or, or so, so you're telling me that if I don't fix that issue, that it won't necessarily, or, or if I don't fix that issue, then I could still get better. Like I, I could still not have pain, but is that going to cause me to have pain again in the future? You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, no. So, and that's why that's a, that's a common sort of like straw man argument against mm -hmm. that is that you're saying it's like, Oh, so what you're saying knees over toes never matters. Or, mm -hmm. and, and so like, I encourage people to have a really good understanding of biomechanics and movement pattern, like observation where like 
knees over toes could potentially be one of the main drivers of someone's anterior knee pain Mm -hmm. and, and trying to manipulate that variable and getting them to, let's say, maybe do a more hip dominant squat or a box squat or a pin squat, something that constrains the range of motion and then slowly lowers it back to that. Like you might have a lot of success with that because you've kind of like unloaded that area. Um, it's just hard to say definitively that that's like the matter of fact, that's the thing that did it because pain is just effing complex. And it just, it's not always that easy because you can have that approach with someone that seems very sensible and it might not always work. And so it's good to try, but it's just putting it, putting it in a bigger scheme gives you more flexibility if things go wrong, quote unquote, if that makes sense. Got it. Got more options outside of just that one thing to try to attack. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with more persistent pain, it's really tough to not fall into giving these sort of like overly confident, um, prognosis of like, yes, we just got to get like persistent low back pain. We just got to get your back stronger. And then you'll, you know, we'll, we'll get out of pain. Like it's not always that easy. People get stronger, but their pain doesn't necessarily decrease that much, but their function gets a lot better. Hmm. And so that's where strength training is really interesting conversation. When we come with persistent pain is it's like less about trying to decrease the pain and more about trying to increase function. And when you see people getting out back into the things they want to do, and they're more engaged in the world, that's where you tend to see pain decrease as a byproduct of like mm. not directly focusing on, ah, we just need to time that multifidus just right. And if we do that, that's going to eradicate your persistent low back pain. Cause like shit can get real complicated real quick when we shift over from like more acute sort of uh, subacute um, sports sort of presentations like tendinopathy or anterior knee pain. And when we start talking about persistent pain, that's a, that's another whole nother beast of a conversation. Cause they're just like some of those more very obvious structural considerations might not be as forefront. Hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit, I guess something that's near and dear to me, cause it's something that I deal with is back pain. And I think a lot of people, I, I know you, I think we talked before and in, in you're into powerlifting these days. Yep. Um, something that I've been into for a long time. A lot of powerlifters dealing with back pain. And a lot of that, a lot of that pain is like a more of a quote unquote chronic type of pain where they maybe they did have an initial injury where the pain started, but for whatever reason, they can't get rid of this pain. Um, when you see a powerlifter say that comes in, comes to you, Um, and they've had pain from specific movements maybe, or maybe it's one of those things where every, uh, every so often they just have a tweak where their back locks up and they, they can barely move. What is, uh, what is step one for you? What, What do you do with them? I mean, step one is taking just like a super thorough history. Like I need to understand everything or as much as I can about this individual, Mm -hmm. their history, like their like where they're from, how they grew up, how, what's their training age, um, and looking at their program. Like what's their program look like? What are their volumes and their intensities like? But, you know, beyond just the physical and then obviously checking out form, but also understanding again, like their social support systems, their financial support systems, mm-hmm. the demands of their job. Like, you know, like I've worked with a powerlifter that is a truck driver. And so he sits all day long. And so like, you need to understand the full context of how this individual has been stressed or perturbed in like a very multidimensional way. 
And that's sort of my starting point is, is you got to start there and try and find some clues as to why these symptoms keep emerging or why they're lingering. Hmm. Do you ever, um, I mean, is something like an MRI or anything like that ever important for your, for your um, investigation? Or is that something that you don't really tend to rely a lot on? Yeah. So, and also going back to step one is, is realistic reassurance in a sense of like, Hey, we rule out red flags as long as there's no progressive neurological symptoms, loss of bladder or bowel functions, like any weird red flags like that. Um, we could feel pretty confident that there's no, there's no need to get an MRI. It's, mm-hmm. uh, if anything, we understand that literally just by getting an MRI, your prognosis has just become a lot more negative just by virtue of getting an MRI. And, right. and that's where you get into things like the nocebo effect where, right. you know, we have, we know that yeah, I'm, you know, I'm 20, I'll be 29 in November and I've been lifting for the past 10 years, you know, really only powerlifting for the past like year and a half, two years. But like, if I, I don't have any low, like low back pain, really, I have some discomfort here and there, but if I were to go get an MRI there, I would, I would be very surprised if I didn't have any sort of quote unquote degenerative or pathological findings in my low back. Cause yeah. as a powerlifter, you're putting a ton of stress on your low back yeah. with all your movements, <laughs> literally <laughs> with the big three, they all stress the crap out of your back. And that's not a bad thing. It's just, you have to weigh it in the context of like, how efficient are you being with your lifts? What's your volume like? What's your recovery like? You know, these are all the questions I really want to have answered, but MRIs, I would, I would discourage um, people from getting, uh, especially if there's not progressive neurological symptoms. I had a friend, um, or I have a friend, who thought he had some lower back problems. He thought maybe he was dealing with like a, a you know, herniated disc or, or right. something like that. You know, first thing you think of when you when you start to have lower back problems, and <clears throat> every time he would deadlift, um, you know, something would happen with his lower back and turned out long story short that it ended up actually being a hip issue because he had um fai in in his right hip and that because he was essentially what what he boiled it down to was because of the fai because of the impingement he had less uh room basically to get to get that hip flexed Uh, and so when he was in a deadlift in order to compensate for that uh lack of yeah, yeah, the lower back would basically take over and that would cause yep. the low back pain. He never had pain in the hip at all. Um, and so that, you know, that's an interesting way to look at how <laughs> there's so many different ways that we could cause a low back problem or any other problem, right? We can look in other areas like maybe your low back pain isn't even a low back structural issue at all. It is something else that's causing that, right? No, that's that's a really good point. And that's why I think too, like those are the those are direct pitfalls to going too hard into pain science is you disregard that. Like that's a very feasible hypothesis that you have a bony block that is limiting your hip flexion range of motion. And you're going to, you're going to get it more from your low back. And again, it's not some folks might not ever have a problem with that. You know, they might be able to slowly adapt to that added demand of our low back. But for some folks, it might be, too much that it, they might hit their their capacity a little bit sooner than they normally should. So it's uh, it's always context dependent, but 
that's why, you know, it's a good thorough subjective exam and history taking, but also making sure you're, you're crossing your I's and dotting your T's with a good movement analysis and like range of motion analysis as well. You mentioned earlier, um, even taking account of like, maybe, uh, you know, what somebody's socioeconomic status or financial status might be like, explain that a little bit more. Like what, how could that be contributing to somebody's pain, uh, low yeah. back pain or whatever? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a, another very complex topic, um, that I'm not necessarily an expert on, but I feel like I have read a lot around it. So I think it, it comes down to understanding about stress science and so we understand, like, I don't know if you're familiar at all with either like Robert Sapolsky, like why zebras mm -hmm. don't get ulcers, or, you Absolutely. know, we talk about things like homeostasis versus allostasis. Mm. Um, if you're familiar with those two concepts. Yeah. And, and explain those, explain those just for people who might be listening and who don't huh. know. Yeah, if, so, in a, a, a little bit, in a nutshell. Yeah, no, I, I laugh because it's, allostasis is such a slippery uh -huh. subject, like, because yeah. it tricks you into thinking that you understand it. And then you go to talk about it and you're like, uh, so yeah. here's, here's my best shot. It's like it. one of those things where you read a word and you think you know how to pronounce it <laughs> until you're forced to pronounce it. <laughs> and I'll give some context too, because this is a really, this is a really important topic because it gets into social determinants of health. Um, so if we, if we look back at like basic understandings of like defining our concepts of homeostasis and allostasis, homeostasis is around the original sort of model of homeostasis is created around this theory that like we have these narrowly set parameters that biological organisms need to stay within in order to survive. And so we need this equilibrium and it's really good for things like blood pressure, heart rate, pH. So some of these different biological systems need this really narrow window in order to survive. And so the process of, if we have a stress experience um, we might be perturbed out of, we might be in a disequilibrium state and the process that gets us back into equilibrium, that is kind of what homeostasis is, is it gets okay. us back into that sort of equilibrium, so to speak. Um, we're restoring homeostasis or that sort of like functional, um, level, that little window for us to, to survive and thrive in, right? Mm -hmm. Allostasis builds on that because it's, Allostasis considers it a lot more to the picture. And so to paint the context of it, it really emerged in the 70s. Peter Sterling, um, he's one of the most like OG uh, researchers with allostasis. He has an amazing book and a great chapter I can send you on uh, allostasis. It's a beast yeah. of a read, but basically talks about when he, he got really interested in it, when he was canvassing around some of the inner city and lower socioeconomic neighborhoods of Chicago in the 70s, he was seeing a disproportionate amount of African-American males that were having like, that had like the, the facial um, consequences of like a stroke. Hmm. So he was like, why are all these African-American males have all these, like, why are they more susceptible to things like stroke? Like, is it genetics? Is it not? Like, because when you look at studies, he was saying that when you look at studies of people in indigenous, in actual Africa, their rate of stroke was much lower. Hmm. So it wasn't like it was just a racial thing. It was more of how the environment was driving these demands. And that's what lays the foundation for allostasis. So it plays off this concept of homeostasis, but there's a lot more variability to it. So homeostasis means stability through constancy. 
allostasis means stability through variance. Mm. And so basically we learn to predict our, we learn to kind of be predictive and anticipate our environment based on the demands. So if you are an individual that's living in an environment that is, you don't have good financial sort of support. So you Mm -hmm. don't know where you're going to get your next meal or you rely on, you rely on really uh, low nutritious um, food because that's all you can afford. Um, you come from a socially disrupted household. And so you look at things like type two diabetes and through a homeostatic lens, the way we would treat diabetes is by restoring someone's insulin level. But the problem is what we're seeing with type two diabetes is that it wasn't that they weren't um, producing enough insulin, they were resistant to it, right? And so what they were finding was that part of people's households and social disruptions were what were driving a lot of these um, adaptations, right? Mm -hmm. And so what they found was instead of of giving people medication to try and make them um, less resistant to insulin, they worked on family counseling instead to try and restore a more peaceful household. And so when adolescents weren't in a household that was constantly on on edge and on threat and driving that stress response, they were able to actually recover and that actually lowered the rates of type two diabetes more so than trying to treat it through a biomedical lens. Wow. And so it paints this picture of how socioeconomic and sociocultural stressors can drive this prolonged and unrelenting stress response. And if you don't have the ability to um, recover and cope with them, then it's not that stress is bad, but if you can't cope with it in an effective way, we know the effects of prolonged stress, right? That's what Robert Sapolsky, or I'm sorry, Hans Selye's original experience for the gas model was around rats that mm. he was putting through prolonged diverse stress responses and they were getting ulcers mm-hmm. and other um, non-favorable sort of adaptations. And so that's where we kind of came up with this whole notion that stress is bad. Mm-hmm. Stress isn't bad. Stress is great. Stress is what allows us to survive and thrive. Mm-hmm. It's when we aren't able to cope with it and recover from it effectively that's when we start to have issues. And so that's why we need to be really sensitive to some of these social determinants of health because that might be some of the big picture stuff that's actually driving an individual into more susceptibility to something because the consequences of chronic stress can be detrimental on our tissues, on our tissue health and on our other things like blood pressure and you know some of these other big systems that drive recovery. And it's sort of this vicious cycle. And if we don't ask the right questions and learn to really listen, we might be missing the picture big time. Yeah. So uh, going back to maybe how somebody could, <clears throat> how that could be contributed to somebody's back pain is through <laughs> an inability to recover, right? Inability to recover because of this prolonged stress response, right. maybe some learned behavior perhaps from, oh, yeah. from, you know, seeing people growing up in your community who were susceptible to the same thing. And now you're kind of learning that same behavior. There's a lot of different ways. So I, th- I, just, I wanted to just kind of clear that up for people who would be, might be thinking, how does somebody's income cause them to have low back pain? But it, it, it really is multifactorial, like you were saying, and it would be irresponsible not to consider every single part of the oh, picture. Yeah, I mean, it's like they might be in a really high stress period at their job. Right. Or they might be going through a divorce or they might be going through drama with their, you know, their boo at the time. And like, yeah. that, that literally has a physiological response in our body. Right. And there's a lot of like inflammatory stuff that happens when, with 
that happens concurrently with a stress response. Mm -hmm. And so it might not seem super intuitive, but some of these, you know, social constructs and psychological constructs can drive that stress response, which again, not inherently bad, but in given context can definitely be a piece of the puzzle. Have you heard of the concept of people saying that, you know, psychological trauma and things like that could be stored in tissues? Um, you know, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard as people go as far as to say, you know, low back pain is a psychological trauma being stored in those tissues. And, and right, I've even seen people go so as far as to say, you know, right-sided low back pain is problems with your dad because you have this, uh, you know, this need to fulfill your dad's wishes and, and you're not doing so. And so that's why you're having pain. So <laughs> yeah, I, I've so, heard these things out there. Oh, I've heard them too. I don't know. That would be way I, I would, um, we, we play a game up here called logic court where it's basically like if someone creates a, a claim, it's subject to logic court, myself included. So mm -hmm. that would definitely be catching a subpoena to logic court because yeah. I just think it's a, it's a bit of a, of a kind of hardcore claim to make um, with like pretty poor biological plausibility. Yeah. That being said, acute childhood traumas, or I'm sorry, um, adverse childhood traumas, also known as ACEs, those can have a long-term consequence on our stress response. Mm -hmm. And there might be some underworkings there that could be contributing to someone's pain, but that's about as comfortable of a leap as I'd be willing to make. Right. Um, you know, to say that it's stored in someone's body part, I would feel would actually be a massive nocebo because now you've just made them feel like there's something that's like very uh, emotional that they might not have that much control over. And until that gets resolved, they won't be able to have pain. Whereas like, it's very well worth going and getting the right help to work on that psychological trauma, but not pinning your pain just on that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, um, when when I hear things like that, the first thing that it sort of throws a red flag for me is that somebody now has something to blame every single little thing that's wrong with them on, right? So like they, stub, they stub their toe and it just won't, you know, like, oh man, my, my toe still hurts. I must have a trauma that's getting stored <laughs> in my toe now. You know what I mean? Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, or, or what have you, whatever the case yeah, is. Yeah, so yeah, no. It's just like... It, 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 I think it's well-intentioned to a certain point, but then sometimes I think it's like you're trying to catch the right kind of person in that net who's going to believe in that kind of thing. And, and you know, yeah. you know, there's sales, there's sales tactics too. It's, it's so hard, but it's like, have you ever read the book being wrong? And I haven't. No. Who's that by? So it's by Catherine Schultz and okay. I would highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's an absolute page turner and it's easily, easily one of the most formative books. And it get, definitely gives me a lot more empathy for individuals that I might see as like being like, Oh my God, how could you do that? But mm -hmm. it's like, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And there's a saying of like in the book, she goes, do you know what it feels like to be right? It mm -hmm. feels like being wrong. And so it's like, you don't know, like you're not even aware that you're doing these things. And so it's these people that are like you said, extremely well-intended but based off their experiences, they've come to a point where this is what they believe. And, uh, you know, they probably haven't been exposed to things that challenge that or they have and they've just turned away because it challenges right. their, their biases. And so, yeah, I struggle mightily because I there was a time a few I mean, when me and Teddy were coming up on Instagram, 
I mean, people were just pimping their Instagram and throwing some flagrant nocebo clickbait mm. stuff, just making these like bold, um, nocebic claims about why people hurt. It's like, for example, it's like you have, you fix your neck pain by fixing your bowling ball of the head, like, mm. and your forward head posture. Like if you fix that, you'll fix your neck pain. And again, mm -hmm. it's not inherently a bad consideration, but when you're painting it as that one only thing, that ain't right because now it creates some really shitty beliefs in the individual of that, right. that's why that's all they need to get better and it paints a bad picture of stress and so yeah it it's tough but yeah that book definitely gives me a lot more empathy for individuals that i might not agree with at all yeah it's kind of like uh i you know people a little while back were saying like all these neck issues we're having are because we're on our phones all the time and we're staring right. down at our phone and, you know, like we didn't ever have this posture before and that's why everybody's having neck pain. And then you see cut to a picture of like the 1960s. Everybody's doing the exact same thing, except they're reading yeah. a newspaper. Right. Yep. So it's well, like, <laughs> that's like the whole, so there's a, there's like a, a sort of a joke, but it's like, if you look at the incidence of low back pain, it's almost like a social construct to an extent mm. because like just the fact of having medicalization, like mm -hmm. an over medicalization is a massive nocebo because mm. like if we don't if we aren't here to create all these problems to tell people that they have they might not ever have an issue with it but right. because we make people so hyper aware about everything it's like again there's a time and place where that stuff is obviously important but it's kind of that uh finding that appropriate balance of like providing appropriate medical care without over over medicalizing which is what we've done as a society big time and we've leveraged from a capitalist perspective i mean the healthcare industry is booming at the at the cost of you know over overly medicalizing and selling bs to you know our entire country is wild yeah that's the controversy of how you know uh, pharmaceutical comp pharmaceutical companies are able to advertise directly to us on tv if you sit down and watch TV, even if, even if it's not, even if it's not cable, if you're watching like Hulu or something like that, I mean, every right. other commercial is, do you have this problem? Do you have this symptom? Well, we have the, we have the solution for you. <laughs> you're like, All well, you have to do. I didn't think I had that problem, right. but I guess now that you talk about it. And, and that's the thing. You almost get an anxiety because um, then exactly. at some point, like you're like, man, I, I, maybe I do have trouble falling asleep because, you know, like last week. Uh, I did kind of take me a long time to fall asleep on Wednesday. And right. then, and then you start to think about it, you go to bed the next day and you're like, I hope I don't have insomnia today. And then it just starts to spiral into this and thing. Again, it's a vicious cycle. And that's where we have these negative consequences of a prolonged and unrelenting stress response. So now right. like if you see those like classic Instagram posts with like someone with like a kyphosis, thoracic kyphosis, and it's like, fix this. Like mm. I'm very kyphotic. I've never mm -hmm. had any issues, but mm. for someone that's not educated, they'll be like, oh shit, I, I don't really have any issues, but like, can you please fix this? And it's like, yeah. doesn't need to be fixed, bro. Have you, have you seen that? Have you seen that people coming to you almost like no noceboing themselves and being like, well, I don't know. I, I just saw that, you know, my, oh, my lumbar yeah. spine's not supposed to do this or my, oh, you know, totally. They're like, oh, I don't, I have a you know, I, I have an anterior pelvic tilt that needs to get fixed. That's what's, yeah. you know, causing my low back pain. And it's like, again, these things aren't inherently bad to look at and like put in a part of your comprehensive evaluation. But if that's what we're pinning as the one thing, that's a massive disservice. And right. it's really missing the big picture. Because again, if someone has a natural anterior pelvic tilt, 
it's going to be really hard to change that in a long-term sustainable fashion. So you might do drills that work on quote unquote correcting it, mm-hmm. but similar to what our talk about scapular dyskinesis, I would feel fairly confident that the long-term kinematics and the long-term postural alignment probably wouldn't change that much. Mm-hmm. And so like people get better, but again, is it because of the exact direct specific fix that you did or because of the stew of other factors that we need to consider why people get better with persistent pain and pain rehab in general? Switching gears a little bit, um, you know, I, I, for the reason it came up is just with that anterior pelvic tilt. And so like it just kind of cut to scenes in my head of all of like the hip flexor stretching and all that kind of stuff that people right. put out there. Lower cross and, syndrome. Right, right. And so... Um, on the topic of stretching, I guess, you know, there's been some debates as far as people in strength and conditioning where they're saying, you know, okay, training in and of itself is, is a great way to increase flexibility. So you don't ever need to stretch. And then there's some people who are on the opposite side who are very much married to their stretching routine and, and want it to do what they think it's doing for them. I mean, what is your opinion? Do you think that for some people stretching is very helpful for them do you think that it's doing anything at all? Like where do you land on that whole spectrum? Yeah. I mean, I've become a little bit, I I guess the the term is a a movement optimist, but I also, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I just don't really care to battle at this point where it's like, if people like doing it, go for it. Like if you (laughs) feel like you benefit from doing stretching, go for it. I don't, I really, my, my, my issue would be if someone was like, no, no, no. Like I got this pain because I didn't stretch that one time before I lifted. Yeah. Like yeah. that's where I would be like, whoa, 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 let's hold up. But like if someone's trying to improve their range of motion and they like stretching, I have no issues with that. My yeah. bias and my preference would be more of the quote unquote loaded mobility route. So like instead of doing a hip flexor stretch, we might do some tempo deficit split squats or like mm. a front foot elevated split, split squat or a rear foot elevated split squat. If it's going to put them into a more quote unquote dynamic and loaded stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely gone through periods of my career where I felt more dogmatic and polarized about like bashing stretching, but now I'm like, I just don't think we have strong evidence to suggest that one is like amazing and that it's just that stretching doesn't do what we thought it did, mm-hmm. but that's okay. It can still work. Yeah. And if people like it more power to them, I'm just not going to be like, I'm not going to be going to their door telling them that this is what they need to do. It's I think more some of like, that, you think you some know. of that could just be like psychologically helping them. Cause yeah. uh, like somebody like, uh, if you're, are you familiar with David Goggins? Yeah, so David Goggins, you know, famously has has said over and over again how, you know, he was getting injured all the time and having all these issues with his shin splints and hip flexors. And then he started stretching like two hours a day or something crazy like that. And now he's all better and, you know, doesn't have those problems. And so I think that sparked, you know, especially being on something like the Joe Rogan podcast where millions of people are listening to that. Yeah, and now So Right is making bank major bank major bank yeah so right like that's an issue for me because that is just a extremely large leap made by someone who's not even like i i think david goggins is awesome for the record like his podcast is freaking awesome but when he got into that rant about the hip flexor stuff i'm like no 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 i'm gonna have so many patients coming in because it's like it's like yeah no wonder you had a stress fracture it's like you overloaded your body like by the nth degree like Mm -hmm. you know 
maybe part of why hip, stretching his hip flexors worked is because instead of doing that extra exercise for two hours a day, he was unloading and letting his body recover. So it's like, again, it, if someone likes doing something, I'm all for it. But if you go on and make a sweeping claim that like stretching your psoas is the key to life, like I'm going to, I'm going to challenge that in logic court. Cause mm-hmm. that just, that's not going to pass the test. And so if that works for you, great. But like, we don't need to be inoculating the society, so, you know, our, our population with that understanding because it can have more harm than good. Yeah. There's some placebo there, right? Like, let's just go back to the, so right. Like it hurts to lay on that thing. And then people think, well, it hurt. So it's going to do something. And right. so now my, my psoas is unlocked. And then now you've, you've actually, removed maybe that mental block in your head of no okay so my psoas was locked now it's unlocked now i'm gonna go squat i'm not gonna have any pain and then they don't have any pain and so that gets a equals b you know we'll reasoning baby right exactly when in in fact it gets just so many reasons there that it could be right that their pain has magically gone away or is quote-unquote magically gone away but i mean this is coming from someone that used to have their hands inside people's bellies, like doing quote unquote psoas releases. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but like, I had to look at myself in the mirror and be like, you really think that you're palpating the psoas? Mm -hmm. Literally, like literally, come on now. And even if you were, like you know that the effects we're having are just transient um, acute windows where for whatever reason, our neurology is allowing us to express more range of motion and expectation can be a powerful driver of that. And so that's another thing where it's like, if people like foam rolling and they're like, what are your thoughts on foam rolling? I'm like, look, if you like doing it, that's great. But if you think that that's what you need in order to stay healthy or like squat, whatever, I'm like, let's have a conversation. Cause then that be, again, that becomes a problem for me. But if it's just like, look, I like doing it. Uh, it feels good. Like whatever. I'm not going to pick that battle. But again, it's just, it's more of the context of how some of these claims are being made that tend to be more of an issue because again, mm-hmm. it just perpetuates a lot of these societal beliefs and expectations that are more often than not counterproductive to things that will improve self-efficacy and um, less reliance on a medical system. Right. Yeah. You know, when I, when I get a new client um, and I do my screening, you know, I usually, since I do everything online, I have them take videos of different exercises that I, that I want them to, uh, that I want to see. Um, but I never do so in a way so that I can point out what's wrong with their form, quote unquote. And right. it's more so for me to see what's going on. Obviously, if there's something egregious and I think is dangerous, then of course, I'm going to point right. that out. But, you know, uh, am I going to point out to somebody that they have too much anterior, anterior pelvic tilt? No, because now I'm, now I'm going to do exactly what we've been talking about, which is put it in their mind as something that's wrong with them and something that could be causing pain when they're not in any pain right now and that's not causing any issues right now. So why would I point it out? Um, Yeah, exactly. But like you said, flagrant sort of uh, deviations from like a quote unquote good pattern. Yeah. I mean, that's why they're paying you. You're a movement professional. You should help coach people up on efficient and optimal ways to train. But again, you can do that in a way that doesn't, um, overanalyze and like, you know, over pathologize normal variations of anatomy. Right. What are some of the more like 
uh, for for lack of a better word, stupid things that have people have come to you with as far as like uh, ridiculous movement myths, like the knees over the toes or like the uh, shouldn't squat past 90 degrees or anything like that. What are just for fun? What are some of the things that you've heard out there that you just like literally I mean, have made you take pause? Well, yeah, well, I guess we'll broaden that a little bit. Like there's obviously been the classic, like, well, I, I overpronate too much. So that's what's causing it. Or I have, I have this, uh, like first met head pain because my tib anterior has a trigger point in it and that's pulling on and creating tension on my first met head. And that's what needs to get fixed in order for me to get better. Um, or like I need to like, when I'm doing this rowing exercise, my shoulder needs to be in the most perfect position. Otherwise I know I'm going to get pain or one individual was saying how his shoulder pain was because like he wasn't able to get good thoracic mobility because he had lactic acid buildup in his ribs. And that was what was causing it. And it's just, it never ceases to amaze me, but again, being empathetic and validating their, interpretation of what's going on and not just being like yo like listen up buddy (laughs) what you what you think probably ain't so but it's like how did they come to learn that you know Mm -hmm. who did they learn that from and then just trying Mm -hmm. to unpack it but yeah i mean you hear you hear a ton yeah yeah i'm sure you do i i like i like your approach about just sort of trying to remember that you know it's kind of trying to remember that just because you know, like you, you've studied this for so long, like all these people that come to you with these thoughts, they've been persuaded to think that way by somebody else because they themselves are just not as informed as you. They don't have the ability to pick apart, you know, these pieces of information because all of it looks legit when you're a beginner, all of it looks legit oh, when you're, when, I mean, you're some, when you're a novice, you know, that's uh that's Dunning-Kruger 101, right? Like, you know, just enough to be dangerous. And so right. like you might read it on WebMD or see, these Instagram followers with like 500,000 followers and you're like, well, appeal to authority. They have 500 K followers. So what they're saying must be factual. And when in fact it's not, and that's my gripe with a lot of the big Instagram accounts is like they sell these nocebic clickbait narratives to build a following because that's what people, it makes sense. And it makes sense from a superficial perspective, but like people like Teddy have somehow been able to build a massive following while keeping his integrity. And that's why Teddy's still my boy. Like there's people that I've burned bridges with that I just don't respect because they, they sold their integrity to pimp their Instagram. And I I think that they're contributing to the the problems that we have in healthcare. I agree with you. It's, it's tough. (laughs) It's tough because it's really it's, uh, to, tough, be on, to be honest with you, it's 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 super tough because my uh, my business is online, so I I do rely oh. a lot on Instagram for yeah. and you know, to a certain degree, I'm sure you do too. Even though you're an in-person clinic, I mean there is some marketing right. to go around there, but Absolutely. just to see the amount of uh, it's just, it's tough to see what works. And 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 I my buddy tells me this all the time that marketing is bigger than education these days. If you can market totally. yourself, like it almost doesn't matter what your credentials are, what you really know, because, because in this world of clickbaity ADD, it's right. just like, Oh, that looks cool. They must be right. Well, and it's just tough too. Cause it's like, you know, again, it comes back to this thing of like, you don't know what you don't know. And I think that like, I, when I look back on some of my, inst- my old Instagram from like, you know, four years ago, I like, cringe because i'm like oh shit you know like (laughs) 
but it's one of those things where it's like when you know better do better yeah and so i don't have a problem if someone is unaware and they're like doing this but like individuals that like there's a person that's literally like made an exact replica of like the move you account and Mm -hmm. like and like i don't necessarily agree with like again like is move you doing good things for humanity and helping people yes absolutely but are they also nociboing the f out of a lot of people and continuing to perpetuate overly structural and hyper pathological understanding of the body yes absolutely and so someone took that exact model and just completely replicated it and now he has like 200,000 followers and people are like wow he's really good at marketing i'm like that's like that's not good marketing like mm. that's cheap that is like that is cheap marketing like mm. that's not good like the way Teddy goes about his business is good marketing. Like yeah. it's figuring out it's such a hard, delicate balancing act of like putting out some good stuff that's click baitable, but not like compromising your integrity just for the sake of, you know, having a viral post. Jacob Harden's another person. Yeah, he's great. That, uh, you know, and he's, we had a great interview because Jacob Harden was someone that was on that other side that was nociboing the F out of millions of people with his platform with these really clickbaity sort of things like him and I, like I told, we had a great conversation about it. I'm like, I used to, I would not give him the time of day because he was like, he's, he was just pushing nocebo clickbait. But when he started to know better, he did better. And there was a switch and he totally changed his platform and he still has a massive following that he's built, but his messaging is a lot more nuanced now. And it's not just these clickbaity things. And so, you know, people like him, Steffi Cohen, you know, Steffi's another person I really respect um, because they do a hybrid does a great job of balancing the nuance while still being a quote unquote sexy platform and, you know, being a big, you know, they're a big influencer in the industry. And Mm -hmm. like I rock mad respects, you know, like hybrid's a sponsor for level up this cohort. Like they're, they're doing it. So like, it's, uh, it's just, when you know better, do better. And like, that's always the quality I'll respect most in individuals. Like I won't, I won't, I won't judge someone or antagonize someone for having a different belief than me, but if, and if they're doing harm, but if they're presented with information and they don't, and they don't grow, if it challenges them, it's a wrap. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I just saw the other day that uh, Dr. Dr. Jacob Harden, got some sort of sponsorship with Castrol USA. Uh, I didn't I know what that. was going on with that. And I was, I was going to be honest with you. I was very confused when I saw the picture because it wasn't like any of his other posts. And all of a sudden right. he's in a garage and there's a can of oil in the background. And I was trying to say to myself, how does Castrol have a, have a vested interest in helping you with your back pain? But hey, I'm not one to judge. Get that bread. Do what you need to do. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I saw, I'm like, whatever. That's all, all, all good. Like I, I yeah. have, I have mad respect for Jacob Harden yeah. because he has so much humility. Like that's yeah. the quality I respect the most in people. That's good. That's good. Um, I guess wrapping up a little bit on the pain thing before we get into, into some other questions is what are some tips that you could give to, to somebody, you know, let's just say myself, even, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you this a little bit out of uh, selfish reasons, but yeah. um, three tips that you could give somebody to improve their pain that maybe don't even require them to go see a physical therapist. Maybe what are three maybe behavior changes or anything like that, yeah. that they could do right now 
that might help them. Not, not that you're guaranteeing that it's going to help, but that might help them get a little bit better. All right. So here's two tips off the dome. Um, one would be understanding something called natural history. And so natural history is basically saying that we, yo, you have low back pain based on the natural history of low back pain. There's a really high probability that you're going to improve regardless of what you do. So that's some reassurance off the bat that again, good, good probability you're going to get better. Another one for people in pain to understand is regression to the mean, which is basically that if you're experiencing a heightened um, stage of pain, again, there's a really good probability that it's going to regress towards the mean of sort of like normalcy, so to speak. So we have two, and again, this is not like, it's not just this thing where it's like, okay, in two days, it's going to get better, but it's understanding in the big picture that these things have a very positive probabilistic um, factor that they're going to get better. And that's, again, why I think we see a lot of diverse treatments work is because right. odds are people are going to get better regardless of what you do. Right. Um, so those would be my, those would be two things off the top of my head. And then I think my third thing would be just keep it moving. Um, the big, like the worst thing you can do when you're having pain is to totally shut it down. Um, like right now, my, my low back is a little bit sensitive to flexion after um, like a deadlift session. And so I'm not going to be like flagrantly going over and flexing, but I'm not just going to shut it down and do nothing. Like go out for walks, find ways that move that don't, that don't really bother it and start there. Um, but you want to keep moving and find ways to continue to exercise and, uh, and load within the constraints of what you can tolerate. But that would probably be three off the top of my head for people experiencing pain to understand. That's great. That's great. So jumping into a little bit more about you, um, the, the level up initiative, um, as for, from what I know, and I don't know much, but from what I know, that's sort of your project that you've put together to help other young, um, uh, healthcare providers in the field to grow, um, as far as education is concerned, um, and stuff like that. Is, is that right? Yeah, it is. And I think it's just like, it's understanding the mission behind it, right? Because it's like level up was basically born out of frustration from patients coming in being like, my doctor told me to stop deadlifting or this physical therapy account with 500,000 followers told me that if I don't fix my thoracic kyphosis, I'm doomed for life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I can't change that person's mind, that Instagram influencer. So I'm not, and I'm not just going to antagonize him. That doesn't do anything. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to radically invest and try and infect and inoculate as many possible new grads and students as I can with strong values of critical thinking and intellectual humility. And if I can do that, then I think we can start to shift the culture of our health, of our healthcare system where we won't fall prey to these like reductionist um, oversimplified views of doing things. And so that was really what it was born out of. And uh, the way we do that is through a free four month mentorship focusing around cultivating, you know, good self-awareness and humility, critical thinking skills and communication skills because it's really hard to communicate about some of this nuance. And so uh, who is that, is the level up initiative open to just physical therapists? Uh, who is it open? No, to? So it's, it's actually open for all musculoskeletal providers. And I include in that strength coaches and fitness professionals, because awesome. there's so many people that go to fitness professionals for pain and that's fine. 
So let's make sure that we're all on the same team with somewhat of a consistent narrative. So yeah, we have PTs, chiropractors, PT students, chiropractic students, PT assistants, LMTs, fitness professionals, strength coaches. Um, it's a really good, diverse, um, diverse crew. And so it's so it's a cohort model. So you kind of start every six months or what, or what is yeah, it? Yeah, it's a, it's twice a year. So we twice run it. We literally just wrapped up our last enrollment um, nice. this past week for an nice. August to November cohort. And then we open up in November for a January to April cohort. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. And so I guess exp- if people have missed out on it now, but maybe they want to get excited about, you know, signing up for it in the beginning yeah. of next year, what kind of, you kind of explained a little bit, but maybe what's some specific topics that you're going to cover? Yeah. Um, maybe what would they, at the end of it, what is your goal that they would come out of it with? I have learned this, this, and this, or I feel I am better prepared to do this, this, and this. Yeah. So I think it's more, I think to sum it up simply, it would be giving giving young clinicians and young providers and even just any, we have people doing it that are 10 years out of school, more confidence with uncertainty. Our being a human is filled with so much damn uncertainty, whether we like to admit it or not. So let's learn to embrace that, lean into it, and it'll only help us grow as people and providers. That's really like the number one thing. If you were going to leave with one thing, it's like more confidence with uncertainty. Got it. More confidence. That's really good. That's really good. Cause you're right. There's a lot of uncertainty out there. And I think uh, many times in my young career uh, being a strength coach where I've run across an issue that I was just uncertain on how to tackle. And then you like go to Google and you go to PubMed and you try to do all these searches and you try to figure it out. But if you're already right. better, it's kind of like training, um, training anybody for high pressure situation. If you've already been there before, you're going to be able to handle it a lot better when you see it again. And that's why, again, it's corny, but like month one is all about like, you know, we have a book for each month and like the first book is, is uh, mindset by Carol Dweck. And it's like just talking about basic things like growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And even though that sounds super corny on the, on the um, sort of superficial end, it's actually really hard and deeply vulnerable to actually embrace a true growth mindset. Cause that means you're hypercritical of yourself and your weaknesses and you acknowledge where you were wrong and where you can grow. And if you can start there, man, we can be, it's just like, it's shit that humanity needs to do. Like look at everything going on in current day. Like people have no ownership over fucking anything. Like (laughs) it's wild. And so, yeah, so that's where it starts. It starts with that being wrong is the featured book in month two, where we talk about, you know, the importance of critical thinking and, you know, you're, you don't know what you don't know. And so having the tools to be more like, aha, like, okay, that's post hoc reasoning. So just because that worked doesn't mean that that's exactly why it worked. You know, it Mm -hmm. helps you ask bigger questions. And then months three and four are just all around communication. So like having that difficult conversation with a client that comes in, that's like, yeah, my back pain's all because like my right glute won't fire at the exact moment I needed to. And that's why it hurts. Like how the hell are you going to navigate that conversation? It's hard. Mm-hmm. Or also how you're going to navigate conversation with peers with different perspectives. So you have someone that is on a totally different wavelength that differs from what you think and you think what they're doing is harmful. How are you going to engage in that conversation in a constructive way? That's not just antagonize, antagonizing them. And so that's really the bread and butter of what we cover in the mentorship. That's awesome. 
not really sexy topics, but things that I would argue are probably some of the most critical for being an effective coach, provider, mm-hmm. whatever. Very necessary topics. Maybe not the sexiest topics, but very necessary topics. Totally. And so as far as, as, far as you and your training goes, I just want to talk a little bit about that. I think uh, sometimes people see their healthcare providers and maybe physical therapists uh, in particular, and they wonder like, well, I wonder how this guy trains. Like, People know how they train, but so what do you, what do you do for training? I mean, you mentioned, you know, having sort of a, a, a bro style in the past and I think uh, getting into powerlifting a little bit, but um, what's training like for, for you as a physical therapist and as a, as a enthusiast of, of fitness? Yeah, I mean, I've gone through different phases to kind of like, for me, working with a diverse athletic population, I wasn't like super passionate about like, I only want to work with powerlifters. Like, So I've done, it kind of started with CrossFit. So I did CrossFit for a while. Then I got into endurance. So I was doing triathlons um, and still training throughout that. Um, But then I went into Olympic lifting um, where I was just doing Olympic lifting blocks for a few months. And then over the past year and a half and change, I've been doing just strictly powerlifting. And that's by far been probably the funnest one for me because it's really been the most consistent I've ever been. I only train three days a week but I haven't missed a day in like a year and a half. And my numbers have like, it's been crazy to just see what happens when you're consistent right. um, with, you know, and, and pushing your boundaries, you know, like I'm a little guy. I want to see what I can get up to with squats and deadlifts. And uh, I think it's good for my patients to understand, like when they're scared to pick up 10 pounds, I'm like, yo, like I have no business picking up whatever weight, like, but if you adapt, like it's, it's all good. Have you competed? Yep. Nice. How many times? Just once. Just once? Okay. Just once. Uh, and most people who compete that one time, they get the itch to do it over and over again. Is that the case for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, COVID's kind of threw a wrench into things. Yeah. So because of my new schedule, it's been a lot harder to be consistent and engaged with my training because I'm not in the gym with my team and the culture of like, I feed off that. Like I'm such a psycho with like, deadlifting is my favorite. And like, if you have the right environment, like I will tap into like my Eddie hall and just like put myself in a dark place and fucking pull for my life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But without that, I, it's definitely been not, it hasn't been as fun. So I'm still training, but I think once gyms kind of get back to normalcy, then I'll think about doing another competition. But for now I'm like, I'm not super competitive in that sense. So I definitely will compete again, but it's just kind of timing wise. Yeah. So have you been able to, if you have been able to keep up with the big three, I guess, have you been able to just make use yeah. of like your clinic and stuff like that? With yeah, the, we with have the everything there. I mean, I'm able, we have everything. We have two squat racks, Ohio bar plates, nice. got, you know, just, we got just enough weight for top end of deadlift strength, but it's like, uh, it's just different. It's just a different environment. Yeah, so it's, it's not, not the same. As, it's not as fun. It's not the same. What um, you mentioned training three days a week. Have, had you trained more than that in the past when you weren't doing powerlifting? Was that? Did you have to sort of change? Yeah, I mean, I I did, but it wasn't. Um, I'm just with everything going on, like, you know, working 40 plus hours at the clinic, running a business on the side, it was getting more stressed out trying to fit in more days. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that stress was counterproductive to my gains. Mm -hmm. And so just committing to three days a week took a lot of pressure off myself 
Mm-hmm. And I was able to really like enjoy the process way more and recover more. And I think, you know, I, I was able to, to massively improve over the past year and a half with literally just three days a week. Yeah. I think that the reason I bring that up is just uh, for anybody who lists, who might be listening, who I get a lot of clients who come to me and they're very, at first, very much a stick in the mud for wanting to train five days a week or six days a week or whatever, because they feel like they have to be training that much in order to get gains and to, to keep progressing. Totally. And um, I've seen time and time again, and, and a lot of this has to go with what you were saying earlier with just asking them questions about everything that's going on in their life and considering them as a whole and having to just sort of walk them down that road of, okay, you've been doing five days a week, six days a week, whatever. You're coming to me because you've hit a plateau. You don't know what to do. And you're wanting to reach out to a coach to figure out how you can keep progressing. And so part of that might be because you're doing way too much and we need to scale back. So why don't we, why don't we do this? let's try three days a week. And sometimes I'll go as far as to say, let's try three days a week. And if you don't get better and you want to switch to another coach, then I'll give you your money back because that's how much I believe that something like this is going to help you. Right. And and yeah, I'm pretty much, I'm pretty much not wrong most of the time. What would you say? I was just going to say like, it allows you to push harder on some of those days when you're actually recovered. And so you get a better stimulus that actually drives uh, response. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's, it's not like I'm sitting around on my couch on every other day, like I'm up moving or I'll go for walks or I'll go for even like, uh, you know, a three mile run mm-hmm. um, to mix in there. But it's just, uh, yeah, I think you don't, if your job isn't to be a professional lifter, then training five plus days a week is just, I, I don't know if, if it's important to someone. Yeah. But it's like, I don't know that it's necessarily the most effective. It, it depends on the individual. Some individuals right. respond really well to that. Some might not. Yeah. I mean, I've got some people that I do put on a five day per week plan, but it's like they're training 30 to 45 minutes rather than being in there for like two hours. Like a lot of people yeah. want to be. Yeah. And so there's a big totally difference there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this has been a great conversation, man. I really appreciate your yeah. time. Um, lots of great information that you gave not only to me, but to, to the listeners. Um, but I want them to be able to contact you if they want. Um, so what's your Instagram? Um, what's the, you know, where can they find more information of the level up initiative and all that kind of stuff? So my personal handle is just, uh, Zach Gabor, Z-A-K Gabor, G-A-B-O-R dot D-P-T. Mm-hmm. And feel free to just reach out, shoot me a message. That's no problem. And then the level up initiative is exactly how it sounds is, is how it's spelled. Sure. And you can find us there if you're interested in that. But um, no, man, the feeling's mutual. I had a blast. Sorry, I went on some rabbit hole uh, riffs about uh, homeostasis and allostasis. Uh-huh. But hey, I, I asked you to do it. <laughs> no, no, I had a really fun time chatting and I appreciate you uh, bringing me on. So absolutely. Actually, between you and I, well, I guess not anymore. But I mean, I bring people like you on to, to riff and go down the rabbit hole because otherwise, what would I have to talk about? Nobody wants to listen to me. They want to listen to you guys. So I really appreciate you all the things you had to say. Sweet, man. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Pleasure. Cool, man. Well, check check Zach out, um, you know, ask him questions. Do you do telemedicine for anybody who might be interested in that? Um, not, not really like virtual okay. wellness, but not really. We don't okay. uh, because state lines. We do do telehealth, but in Massachusetts. 
Got it. Okay. Well, either way, it's a wealth of information. Hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. We will see you guys next time.